0: This movement of where is my food, where does my food come from, has really turned an ear, not just in Mississippi, but throughout the country, or maybe throughout the country and Mississippi, for looking at what we can do differently to actually help to reverse some of this that's been done as relates to health.
1: I'm Tiffany Patton, and this is Foodtopias, the podcast from Real Food Media that shares stories and strategies for reimagining our relationship to food, to the land, and to each other. In this episode of Foodtopias, we are traveling to Jackson, Mississippi to learn how a farm is not just planting seeds in the soil, but seeds in the mind as well. I spoke with Dr. Cindy Ayers, CEO and head farmer of Footprint Farms, about supporting her community through food farming and activism. So Dr. Cindy, you're the CEO and founder of Footprint Farms in Jackson, Mississippi, but you weren't always a farmer. You were an investment banker, the CEO of a foundation, and now you are a farmer
0: I am a full-time farmer. It's such a wild journey.
1: (laughs) A full-time farmer. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Can you tell us about that journey?
0: Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. And to be able to talk about healthy foods and foods anytime gets me excited. And just for people to understand the importance and to know that there is a struggle out there and it's truly real. But I come in this way a little different in farming. I've never farmed before. I'm now in my 10th year of footprint farms. And I always say we're more than just a farm where we put seeds in the soil. We also farm to put seeds in the mines. We look at what else we can do to help develop different types of harvests uh, for our community, for our youth to look at this in a different way. So again, we are a farm that grows a lot of vegetables, but we also feel like we're growing bigger communities, bigger ideas on what we can do about our health and about our economy. So Footprint Farms stands on shoulders of our ancestors of so many different things that has been done before us. So we're just pleased to have the opportunity to try to make a footprint beside some of the great people that are out there. But for me, I've, um, I am a Ph.D. in urban higher education, though I never taught in a classroom. It's always been outside um, and it's never been just about education. It's been about education, economics and truly life and what we can do to help make it better.
1: So with your travels all over the world and working in various states in the U.S., what prompted you to start your farm in Jackson?
0: Well, I'm a Mississippi girl. This is home. This is where I can go back at least six generations to being here in Mississippi. I always say I'm just one generation removed, but I came back. And my grandparents actually was a big part of the civil rights movement in Mississippi, so they had to send me away and send me out to get my armor, as they would say. My great-grandparents, my great-uncle and grandfather was a big part of the educational movement here in Mississippi, where in 1973, my family filed suit against the state of Mississippi for the inadequacies of education for the black HBCUs, the HBCUs versus the white institutions here in Mississippi. And it only took 30 years for that suit to come to fruition. I was the third generation to have to bring that to fruition. Wow. That's
1: incredible. What a powerful legacy that you're continuing. HBCU stands for Historically Black Colleges and Universities. HBCUs were established before 1964 with the purpose of providing higher education to Black people and low-income students. Cindy Ayers' grandfather, Jake Ayers, was a Black sharecropper and civil rights veteran. He sued the state of Mississippi for not providing adequate resources to the three HBCUs in Mississippi a series of federal courts agreed, finding that black colleges received much less money per student than other colleges. The case lasted three decades, going through multiple federal courts before finally reaching a settlement in 2002.
0: It is something that I, you know, you don't plan to do or to be. It's just a part of, I guess, your DNA of what you have to continue to do. I never thought I'd be back in Mississippi farming. I always thought i will be back in still helping with some type of policies, which we do, but not in the aspect of actually physically farming, but I am, and I'm very proud of that. A rich legacy of farming and
1: civil rights activism runs through Cindy's blood, and it runs deep through the soil and soul of Mississippi. Mississippi is the birthplace of notable farmer and civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer, who founded the Freedom Farm Cooperative in Roleville, Mississippi. The Freedom Farm Cooperative created an alternative to the Great Migration by providing housing, health care, employment, education, and access to healthy food that the white power structure of rural Mississippi denied them. Mississippi is also home to the North Boulevard County Farm Cooperative, a cooperative founded in 1967 by Black farmers to feed their communities and practice freedom. Activism and farming have long opposed the extractive and oppressive forces in Mississippi and around the world. And as our present moment shows us,
0: the work is never done. When you look at the makeup of the soil for Mississippi, we are one of the richest soils and throughout. But we also look at the number one in diseases. We're also number one in high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease, kidney disease. And yet still we grow so much food, but we grow commodity foods. We grow a lot of cotton, rice, wheat, soybeans, So the agriculture component that we have in Mississippi is more for animals than it is for people. And I think that's one of the biggest things that goes back to the South, even back to slavery, where this state was prone to commodities. It was always about the dollar and what could be made, never truly about the people and the health. And a big part of it now is still about agriculture and the standpoint of the large Farmers that are still farming the wheat, the rice, the soybeans, more so than for the people. Mississippi exports billions
1: of dollars in food and agricultural commodities each year. And yet the state is ranked as the most food insecure in the U.S. Mississippi's number one export, poultry fattened with industrial soy and corn, their other top exports, is a staple on the menus of the 70 fast food restaurants found in Jackson alone.
0: In the last couple of years, maybe the last five, this movement of where is my food, where does my food come from, has really, you know, turned an ear, not just in Mississippi, but throughout the country, or maybe throughout the country and Mississippi, for looking at what we can do differently to actually help to reverse some of this that's been done as relates to health to all Mississippians, especially black Mississippians, with not having a proper diet or access, even now, having access to healthy local foods. It is about commodities. You know, there is an agriculture board for everything except for fruit and vegetables. Now more than ever, it's always about the big growers and the commodity crops.
1: Right. That's wild to me, but also it makes quote unquote sense considering the type of world that we live in. But you'd think that there'd be so much Mm -hmm. more value put on the things that actually feed us. (laughs) And also with those commodity crops, it's not like the money is going back into the community. A lot of the companies who are dealing in these commodities are large corporations or based in other countries. So that's like, not only is our crops being taken out, but also
0: profit. Mm -hmm, A big part of the wealth. Again, we have no value added here in this state as it relates to our raw goods, unless it is some of the commodities that we talked about. Of course, we have gins to gin the cotton, to get the cotton in the seed separation. You know, we have soybeans that's in silos until they're shipped outside of the U.S. So those things are in place and they are very well represented by dollar value in Mississippi. But when it comes down to value added for the food, it's not here, which is one of the reasons that food for people, for humans, are not grown as much here because there's no processing uh, facility to help you process. As a farmer, after three days, four days, if I have not sold that good, then it is going to not make a profit for us or it's going to be given away or it's going to be thrown away. We don't have the facilities to do value added, which would be one of the things that would make life a whole lot easier for people in Mississippi to actually have access to healthy foods. Think about it. If we had um, a place where we could do value added, instead of tomatoes, just being a tomato, they could be tomato sauce or tomato soup. Um, instead of the cucumbers just being cucumbers, they could also be pickled in cucumbers or pickled and on the shelves or even in canned food. I mean, canning in jars to still be fresh and accessible to the community. But none of this is here. So as a small farmer or as a farmer of vegetables, we are definitely in the minority, even though we are producing a lot of food. But again, having a short chef life not being able to do that value added, that's less revenue that's coming to the farm to be able to go back into the community where we're employing local people and also bringing training to local people, not just working on a place, but actually giving them stock or letting them be a stakeholder in their community. And again, creating an environment within the communities that you can actually walk to, eat from, and have access to.
1: Right. There's the farm and then there's people with their tables, like in the farm to table movement. But what we're missing here in Mississippi is everything that's involved in the two, in the process.
0: Yes, we're missing a lot of that. And not just Mississippi. I think a lot of other small farmers throughout the country that we, we work with and we know we're a part of is missing the same thing. By not having a place that we can do value added, not having the proper post-harvest equipment that's needed, especially Black farmers and smaller farmers. I'm talking about farmers with less than 100 acres um, that's growing a lot of fruit but don't have that proper equipment that's needed in order for them to be able to strive further. You got to have a market to sell it. You have to have a place to harvest it and keep it for at least two days before going to the market so that it can still stay fresh and have a longer shelf life.
1: Going back a little bit to when we were just talking about the lack of access to fresh, nutritious, and affordable food, Jackson and along with many other cities in the US has like a very pronounced food desert or food apartheid. Who does the food apartheid impact the most?
0: in my community is the black people, the African American people, the brown people, the Hispanic people, low income people, anyone that do not have proper transportation and proper dollars to go to a supermarket or a grocery store that actually has fresh fruits and vegetables, quality fruits and vegetables. If you're inside of food desert, you could be inside the city. I would be inside the city, but you are still 10 miles away from a grocery store that has uh, good healthy foods or at least seven miles away. So how do you get there if you don't have transportation and the public system is not adequate for the needs? So you end up doing what a lot of people has to do in order to eat. You're going to the corner sundry, the little corner store where they have nothing nutritious there, but probably milk might be the The only thing that they have is some juice, but everything else is going to be sodas and it's going to be canned food. It's going to be maybe some dry food. And even that is going to be very high in sodium, what's there. Uh, But that's all you have. And if that's all you have and you have to eat, what are you going to do? You're going to buy what's there and you're going to have to consume it. You know, if you get to the grocery store, you might go twice a month. Now think about it, going to the grocery store and you only can go twice a month. And then you got to pay somebody maybe $50 to take you there and, and to bring you back. So when you go in to purchase, you're not purchasing a lot of fresh food. You're purchasing canned food. You know, you're purchasing hopefully some dried food, um, not much frozen food, which is if you can't get fresh, go frozen because you don't have the capacity to store it. You have a small refrigerator, maybe with a small freezer. So you don't have a lot of space to keep it. So what do you buy? You buy things that are long lasting. And those are the things that are not necessarily healthy for you with all the can, with all the sodium, um, with all of the noodles, with all of the fat. So look at what they have to purchase. Look at what the cabinets are are storing. And that's just to make sure that they got something for 15 days to be able to go to the cabinet to get to cook or to prepare or to snack. So this is what you end up buying and coming home with. And still wondering why, you know, you're still taking insulin on one hand, you're a diabetic, but yet this is still the food you have to eat. Uh, or you have kidney disease and you go into dialysis, but your diet hadn't changed to reflect anything else because this is all you have to eat. What what do you do?
1: Right. I was reading this New York Times article written by a woman named Sabrina Strings, and it was talking about COVID-19 and how Black people are so much more likely to get it and then to die from it. She reframed diet-related diseases as racism-related diseases, which I really appreciated because it's not like diet happens in a vacuum. It's very much about what you have physical and economic access to, and those things are impacted by our race.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it, it is, and this is true. So again, you have to go back and understand and look at the history of accessibility, of uh, having access. Um, and then during this time with this pandemic, it's even more so to the low-income, under poor communities or the food desert communities. Because now, even when you go to the store, if you get there, there wasn't a lot on the shelves to get or to bring in because, you know, you just can't go anytime. But one thing this has done is shown, uh, hopefully America can see the need for more access for local food to be grown, for healthier foods to be in your state or in your areas versus having to worry about is it coming in via truck? How is it coming in? Was it coming from other states where the virus has taken half of the workload so the foods are not coming in? I mean, all of this plays a big role uh, in having accessibility even as a state. So what good is a lot of wealth and money if you have nothing that you can buy or purchase with? That's the reason it's important for us to start looking at being self-sustainable for ourselves and utilizing what God has given us in the earth with the soil, the land, the water, and the air.
1: When I was looking up Footprint Farms, I saw that y'all had a variety of programs, ways that you engage the community and also increase access to food. So can you tell me about some of the programs at Footprint Farms
0: and also who you serve? Absolutely. Well, we have several programs. We have our CSA, our Community Supported Agriculture, where we actually grow food and actually sell in different boxes for deliveries to communities where you can actually pre order and you can pick it up on the farm um, safely here, or you can order it to have another pickup spot that you can pick up from. We also go into farmer's markets where we're still selling in farmer's markets, bringing access to the community. But we also have programs that we were actually training, and we're still doing a lot of this, but it's now via Zoom, on how to grow food in your community. How do you grow if you're lucky enough to have a high tunnel uh, to grow in that, or if you have a red coffee can to grow in that. We were doing a lot of programs and showing you how to be able to do it yourself and to do it well. Also, we were programs about what's available through USDA, um, especially in RCS. Our natural resource conservation services and their programs that they have is truly for the people in the community. So there's ways to utilize that. And on our farm, we have been able to train a lot of people from the community to actually not just work on the farm, but to be part of the farm where we've actually leased half acre for a whole dollar. Um, One who's gone through, who wants to learn how, and by leasing them their own land, they're able to go into, I'm able to take them into the USDA office to let them qualify for some of the programs that they can qualify for themselves to be able to grow food under our umbrella and learn how to do it and get them ready to go out on their own. Uh, And we do this as a co-op type of setup where the equipment and everything we have is done from footprint farms, from what we're growing to how we're growing on a certificate that we're growing under, but you're able to work your land under this umbrella and we do it together. When we plant one field, we're planting all of the fields together. When we harvest one, we're harvesting all of them together. But yet, still, what you're growing and you know what you grow, when we go to market or we go in our CSAs, you're making your money that way. So you, you're, you're making as much money as you want to make with what we're growing. But the farm does the heavy lifting for the certification, for the boxes, for our end user. Um, so we're doing this together in return of truly a village growing the food, and everyone is benefiting from that. Uh, So everybody has something in the pot. and everybody's coming to the table with more than just an appetite. They're bringing something there. You know, we want to learn, so we're harvesting together. So that makes a big difference in what we can sell and the prices that we can sell it for. Yet still, the cost of doing business is less because I got tractors already. You don't have to buy a tractor. You know, we have the disc, you don't have the buy disc. So we have some things that's already in place and we all benefit from that and we all give back to the pot for more things to continue to happen. That's wonderful. A different way, a new way of looking at how do we do this and how do we maintain land? You know, how do we look at the land that we have and not lose any more black owned land? What is it we need to do with our air property where families still have land and nobody is talking to each other. So it's being lost for taxes. You know, we're just not paying the taxes on it, not realizing the importance of having this land, even though it's not active right now, it could be. So a big part of this is necessary. That's a reason for a great organization group like CEPHON, the Federation of Farmers, a lot of the other organizations that's out there supporting small farmers, especially farmers of color, Um, to be able to make a great, decent living and impact their communities with healthy foods.
1: The city of Jackson has named Big Food as a major barrier to health for its residents. The city launched a collaborative citywide art and food initiative called the Fertile Ground Project to call further attention to food and health-related disparities and inequities and provide inspiration for new ways of thinking about public space, food, and agriculture.
0: The Ground Project is part of the Bloomberg Funding for Art and Food. This is from, I think it was 16 communities that Bloomberg Foundation actually did a million dollars to. It was a competition of what you could do with it and what you could do within your community, utilizing art and food. So part of this for the city of Jackson, working closely with Mayor Lumumba, and their staff was to call it fertile ground uh, for several reasons, and one that you stated because we are so fertile right here in this state with so much beautiful land and and great soil. But it's also to look at the fertility of what we have and not utilizing and how we can utilize it more within our city, how to bring light on what food deserts are, but also how we can take what we have and help eliminate these food deserts, to also look at what best practices could be right here in your city, and not to think about city as just being urban and not having access to our rural communities for food that could be grown both places and brought in, but it was also about understanding the importance of what we have, but yet still what we can build from, how we can utilize our parks, for more than just for grass and for walking trails, how we can actually you know, help grow food in there for people to be able to have to eat. It's also about policies to really bring the attention to how policies are being written and what they're not saying and what people can do. And how important it is to be at the table when policies are being set and when laws are being put in place that impacts us every day. And a big part of our life in that Is food. We're very pleased to be a part of Fertile Ground, and uh, that's just one stage of it. And for us, it was to be able to have more farm-to-table dinners. We were to host a dinner for about 250 people here on the farm. Uh, So we're still utilizing that track of what we can do, uh, looking at other things we will bring to the farm that's right here within the city that we can use to help grow food, but also to help grow minds and what our limitations should not be. If I can do it here as a best practice, and you can do it there too. And we can take it other places for it to work. And that's the community coming together to do something for itself.
1: So how did the Fertile Ground Project shift in response to COVID-19?
0: Well, of course, you know, we had started a year before covid came into play. So it came in, we were about ready to actually bring people in to see the work that has been done. Um, So a lot of that we have not been able to do, which is one reason the documentary came on and came out um, through the Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's a very good documentary. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. We We are working on that part of it still, of what we'll do next, but it was to bring attention to a lot of things that we have here at Footprint Farms and in our city.
1: And how did the work at Footprint Farms shift in response to the pandemic?
0: Well, again, we had to look at doing things a little differently. Um, we were doing the drive-up pickup that we talked about, that people can actually drive to the farm and pick up their orders and stay in their vehicles and, and still get the food without being outside of their car, their comfortable zone, that they could just do that and go home with it. You know, we've already shifted that way uh, to make sure we can still bring access. I'm curious, what has the pandemic shown
1: you about your community and your work?
0: Well, what it's shown me about the work and the work that so many other small farmers do around this country is that, you know, we're truly needed, yet still we're the, the least of these that people recognize to understand the work that goes into being a farm and a farmer. Um, the other side of that is, it has shown um, that the community and families, you know, have to come closer to each other, to actually know your neighbor and to help to um, build your community as a whole. It's important to recognize that life is so valuable, and we should look at how we keep our health so that we're not so prone to diseases, but also how we should keep our self-control of what we do and how we do things. Even right now with understanding this is real uh, and the life you say just might be your own, but it definitely could be your neighbors or your cousins or your aunt or your grandmothers, the way that we are conducting ourselves now. So it's truly important to be your brother's keeper or your sister's keeper in this case.
1: I love that. Okay. So final question. Our podcast is called Foodtopia, Food plus Utopia. I want to know from you, what does Foodtopia look like to you?
0: Hmm. Well, to me, it looks like having um, food gardens, tower gardens on each corner where everybody can just walk up and just pick it up right there where they are. Foodtopia to me is actually having access and being able to have the wisdom and the talent to create your own. And it's not just in my mind, it truly is real, but it's also in my backyard. It's almost like the whole phrase, it says no place like home, there's no place like being at home and having your own food that you're growing. So my utopia would be to have access to the knowledge and to the technology and to the willingness to make your own right there in your backyard.
1: To learn about Fannie Lou Hamer, the North Boulevard County Farm Cooperative, and other examples of Black agrarian resistance in the South, check out the book Freedom Farmers, Agricultural Resistance and the Black Freedom Movement by Dr. Monica White on our sister podcast, Real Food Reads. Thanks for listening to Futopia's Growing Food, Cultivating Utopia. I'm Tiffany Patton, and this episode was recorded from my home in Oakland, California. Foodtopias is produced by Real Food Media in partnership with our food movement allies and edited by Asal Isanipur. My co-producer is Tanya Kersen, and our theme music is Set Me Free by Will Magid. Coming up on Foodtopias, Tanya talks to Zimbabwean farmer activist Elizabeth Mpofu, General Coordinator of the International Peasant Farmer Confederation, La Via Campesina. Don't miss it. To subscribe and listen to our two podcasts, Foodtopias and Real Food Reads, look for Real Food Media wherever you get your podcasts. For transcripts, resources, and information about our amazing guests, visit realfoodmedia.org.